Well, good morning. Uh, that song really kind of sets the tone uh, for what I want to talk a little bit about uh, this morning. So uh, we're in the study of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible with you, we want to jump to Nehemiah chapter 8. But if you haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Brian Robertson. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I'm very grateful to have you here, whether you're here, as Pastor Jason mentioned, if you're streaming online, we're grateful that you're there as well. Extend a special welcome to those of you who may be newer, maybe the first time gathering with us here or online. Certainly hope that you're encouraged by what you experience <clears throat> by our family, uh, and hopefully uh, you feel more like family when you leave than you did when you came. So hopefully that's true of all of us. But we've been studying uh, this book of Nehemiah for the last couple of weeks here. And we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 now. Now Nehemiah was one of the Israelites that was in uh, exile. And he was sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls in particular and put the gates back in order because the city had been burned down and in shambles and all disarray had happened. And Nehemiah was one of the Israelites that had found favor in the king and the pagan king and he sends him back to Jerusalem to help rebuild and restart the city and the people of Israel back together. Uh, but we've mentioned this all throughout the study. So if you've been here, this is not new to you. But we've mentioned that the, uh, the city wall of Jerusalem was a visible expression of their spiritual reality. So Nehemiah and the Israelites knew that because the city has, was in shambles, because it was in disarray and the walls were burned down, the gates were torn down, that that was a visible uh, expression of their spiritual need. That there was a spiritual brokenness that they had been experiencing and that they needed to be rebuilt. They needed to be rebuilt restored in their own life with God, and that was visibly seen in their need for the, uh, for the city walls. In other words, that that physical brokenness was just a, 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 an indicator of the spiritual brokenness. Now, Nehemiah knows this, and so do the Israelites knew that, but it's an important principle for us to recognize when we're seeing spiritual brokenness in our own families or in the families of those around us or the friends or the neighbors that you may interact with. When we see brokenness, there's a spiritual or, or an important principle that we learn from the study of the book of Nehemiah, and that is this, that while there's a, a spiritual need of brokenness, oftentimes part of the work of sharing the spiritual need is meeting the physical need. Sometimes we need to meet a physical need in front of somebody uh, and not just talk about their spiritual need, not just talk about their life with God, but we actually need to take care of the issues right before them. Nehemiah knew that one of the issues that were in front of the Israelite people was their safety, their city was in shambles. They, they, they didn't feel safe, that there were people of threats coming into them all the time. And part of giving the good news of God's love and God's mercy in their life was to meet their very physical need, to take care of their physical safety right in front of them. What I've learned in my short amount of time of, of following Jesus and trying to follow and trying to lead other people to know about Jesus is that people aren't all that really interested in knowing about God's love for them when their stomachs are hungry and they're feeling like they are in danger and their lives are in shambles. Somehow God's good news, in other words, has to meet their physical needs as well. That it can't just be about my spiritual relationship with God, but there is an aspect of caring for people's physical needs. To know that God loves them and cares for them, but we also know that God cares for their physical needs as well. Part of, in our language, part of transmitting hope of the gospel means that we meet the people's needs right in front of them. So when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, he meets the physical needs. 
He takes care of the security and the safety issues of the city. But he also realizes that when the walls are being completed and the gates are being hung back in order and everything's going, that his work is not complete. His work is not finished. It's not enough, in other words, to meet the physical needs of someone on the outside and not deal with the spiritual need, not deal with the undercurrent needs of their heart to know who God is. It's not enough, in other words, to build the city and to make the walls look good and have the gates hung in place without addressing the more important needs of their life with God, to address their spiritual brokenness, not just their physical brokenness. And while their physical needs were being met, their hearts still needed to be changed. And Nehemiah helps them there. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a turning of the story where the walls and the physical needs are being built and being taken care of. And now Nehemiah and others begin to address the more spiritual, heartfelt needs that need to happen. And here's what you need to know about our life with God. And that is that God's people are built, spiritually speaking, in our heart with God. God's people are built by the word of God. By the word of God. That there's brick and mortar that needs to build the walls and hung doors need to happen and all that stuff has to happen. But by God's people are built, our spiritual lives are built by the word of God. There are a variety of places and and influences that can teach you how to live your life, how to live a life that you are thinking you desire. But all uh, all the other influences, whether it's people, relationships, upbringing, all the various other places, will all pale in consideration of the Word of God. None is more powerful, more influential, more true, more important than the Word of God. As the Song that Jason sang for us just a moment. These ancient words, ever true, shaping me and shaping you. Nothing is more important to our life with God than the Word of God. Because our souls and our hearts are built, restructured, strengthened by the words that we find from the Word of God. This is why in the Newer Testament, the Apostle Paul would write to his young friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As as people of God, we are to be thoroughly equipped for the work of God, for, for the God's calling on our life. And how are we fully equipped and challenged and strengthened and shaped along the way? We're trained by the Word of God. But for the work that God has for us, we are equipped and trained by the Word of God. There's all sorts of opinions about how to live our life in the most eternal, meaningful, significant way. But none as important or life-giving or true than the Word of God. For all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That we would be fully equipped for the work of God that God has for us. Because the Word of God contains truth. It it contains God's revelation, who he is. What we find, what we know about the nature of God and his character is found in the scriptures. He has told us about who he is and about who we are and about the kind of life that he's calling us to. It's all contained right in this ancient words ever true that shapes me and shapes you. The scripture, the word of God forms the foundation for our very identity. How you know who you are is by what God decides or what God has declared over you. And we read that in scripture. 
Throughout all of Scripture, the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, we understand who we are as God's people, as God's beloved, as God's loved children of, God, of Him, that who we are is known and nurtured by what we read in the Scriptures, by the stories we read, by the nature of God that we understand. And what we see in Nehemiah, in particular Nehemiah chapter 8, is that the Word of God is what rebuilds the people to be the people of God. The word of God is what shapes the people into knowing who they are, who God is, and the calling that God has on their life. All comes from the word of God. And what I want us to consider this morning is how is it that the word of God can shape and restore and give us our identity of who we are? For again, we all have perspectives of what we are and who we are and all the various influences that come into our life. But how can we allow the word of God to shape and restore us so that we can live the kind of life that God has called us to live? That we can experience the kind of heavenly, eternal existence that God has called us, created us to live? And there's a few things that we can learn from Nehemiah here and from the people in Nehemiah's story. And the first thing we can learn is that they had a desire for God's word. They longed for God's word. They wanted God's word. They had this holy desire to understand, to learn, to, uh, to, to meditate on it, to hear it. They had this desire for the word of God. And that desire is one element in how it shapes them in their life. So listen to the story in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. When the seventh month, that's going to be important, by the way, in just a few minutes here, so hold on to that. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men, women, and all who were able to understand he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The Hebrew people, the people of Israel, had a desire for God's word, to study it, to hear it, to have it be read. And so when their walls are being rebuilt and they know that they need a heart renovation, they need something changed in their life, they come back to the word of God. They find it, they find Ezra, the teacher, and they say, Ezra, you need to teach us and read us the scriptures. Read it to us so that we can know and that we can live our life and adjust our life according to it because God's people are always built by the word of God. So they have to have a desire for it. They have to have a longing to know it and to hear it and to understand it. We're told that Ezra comes out with the, with the scripture, with the law of Moses, and he begins to read it. And they begin to study it. They begin to understand it. They're reading it from the daybreak until noon. Friends, our services last just over an hour, right? From daybreak until noon, all they are doing is listening to Ezra read and study and interpret the word of God. They had a holy desire to know, to have more knowledge, to understand it, to seek to understand the stuff underneath it and the depths of it. And they were mining out jewel after jewel after jewel and they just wanted to study and know it. They had a desire for the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is what builds the people of God. They longed for it, not because it was masterfully written, which it was, 
Not because of all of the things that you can see in it and all the, the literary forms that you can see in it, which is fantastic, but because it reveals to them the character and the nature of God. Because it tells truth about who we are, about what God is calling us to. And it connects them to the nature of God and this eternal life that God has called us to. And it connects us to that for the word of God is God's revelation to us. So the people of Israel, the people, the Hebrew people know that they need to restore their life, rebuild their life. And where do they turn? With a longing and a desire for the word of God. To hear it, to study it, to understand it. So let me ask us all the obvious question, right? What's our level of desire for the word of God? What's our level of desire? Have you hidden it away in your heart? Do you desire to understand and to know it? For if you want to live a heavenly way of life, if you want to live an eternal kind of quality of life, then your life has to be built on the word of God. And one starting place for that is to have a desire for that. Have a desire to understand and to learn and to read. For the word of God contains truth about God, about us, and about the kind of life he's leading us into. Jesus, at one point, he's teaching these masses of people, and at one point he comes to his disciples, and he's teaching some things that are truthfully really difficult, really hard to accept, really hard to even understand and wrap your mind around it. And as a result of that, all these people are leaving him, and they're just going on their own way. And Jesus turns to his small gathering of disciples, just the small inner circle, the 12, right? And he says, what about you guys? Are you guys going to leave too? Is this too much for you? Are you do you want to leave? To which Peter responds in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's recognition in Jesus' words that it is Jesus' words, it is the Word of God that leads to an eternal kind of life. So it comes to a point where you go, to where else am I going to turn? To my friends for advice, for how to live life, to the best author or book that I can go after. To whom else am I going to turn except the word of God that contains the truth of God that has the eternal way of living straight from there. Peter has it right. I've come to know and believe that this is the way to eternal life. The Hebrew people had a desire to have their life built on the things and the truth of God. But there's a second way in which they can be an example for us. If we want to have our lives rebuilt and restored and renewed into the ways of heavenly living, not only did they desire God's word, but they had a reverence for God's word. They had a reverence for God's word. It wasn't just some word. It wasn't just some blog post that some person, I'll say, wrote on some internet site and just say, oh, that's it. But this was the word of God. Listen to Nehemiah chapter eight. We'll pick it up in verse four through six. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion and beside him on his right stood all these people. <laughs> yeah, 
I'm not even going to try that today. I'm not going to try. All these people are on his right, okay? Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. All the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra is called out to read the scripture and so they can understand it and they can, they can devote themselves to it. And there he's given a high wooden platform so that everybody could see and his voice could project because they wanted to hear the word. It wasn't enough if you were on the same level that you couldn't see Ezra, you couldn't hear his voice. So in order to honor what was being spoken, what was being read about, they elevated him up so that they would hear him. And when he starts reading from the scriptures, all the people stand up out of honor and respect and of reverence, out of, the, out of reverence for the word. There are some Christian churches even still to this day that hold that tradition where when the word of God is spoken, everybody stands up for the word, for the reading of God's word. And that's not, I don't think that's commanded in scripture. I don't think that's what we have to do. But it is a good illustration of good reverence for the scripture. For it's not just some written thing down some thousands of years ago that just somebody put together, but we recognize its authority. And it speaks truth about every situation. Psalm 1, the psalmist describes a person who is understanding and meditating on the words of God as like someone who's planted a tree planted by his streams of water that's always getting its nourishment all the time and that everything they do prospers and it continues to build a strong life because they are built on the word. And they're getting their nourishment from the word of God. They've, they've meditated on it so it's inside of their heart. They're knowing it. They recognize that the word of God is not just some word among all sorts of words, but it is the word of God. And then it contains truth and nourishment for the kind of life that we want to have. That kind of person has agreed with Peter, says, to whom else am I going to turn to? Where else am I going to find the words of eternal life other than the word of God? That kind of person finds their nourishment always and everything that they do prosper. And yet the psalmist in Psalm 1 says that the opposite is true. That someone who neglects the word of God, who decides to go their own way, to chart their own path, well, they'll never experience the goodness and the joy and the richness of a life that they were made for. That their, their life, and the way the psalmist writes it, their life is like chaff that just blows in the wind and is destroyed and is destructive along the way. That they will not be able to stand on the day of the Lord. But I want us to know something. Not only do the people have this understanding of reverence for the word of God, not only do they desire the word of God, but notice that the word of God leads to the worship of God. When we know who God is, the natural, proper response is a worship of God. When we can see the love and the mercy and the grace of God in our life, to not deal with us the way that we deserve to be dealt with, but his loving kindness to come to us. When we get a glimpse, even a sliver of a glimpse of the nature of God, it wells up worship in our hearts. The people hear the law being read to them and they're studying it and they respond, amen, amen. And they fall down on their face and they worship God, for the only proper response when your eyes and my eyes get even a sliver glimpse of the glory of God, the only proper response is to fall down in total adoration and worship for our great God. To declare his goodness 
over my life and over all of creation. But one more thing, one more thought here. For not only do the people desire God's word, not only do they have a reverence for God's word, but I also want you to see that there's joy in applying God's word. There's joy in applying God's word. See, it's one thing to hear about the word. It's one thing even to stay up from daybreak until noon and listen to someone drone on and on about the word of God. It's one thing to show up and to hear it in one ear, out the other ear, but they always have the necessary step of applying what we have heard. This is why James would tell us later in the Newer Testament to not just be a hearer of the word and so deceive yourself, but become a doer of the word, to be a, someone who's putting the words into practice, right? And that way the word of God is not meant to just be this nice work of art that you hang on the wall and as you pass it every day in the, in the hall of your house, you go, oh, that's a nice looking piece of art. Oh, look at that. That's nice. This was handed down from one generation to the next generation. Look how wonderful this is. And we just admire it from a distance. No, the word of God is meant to be powerfully applicated into our life and applied into our life in ways that brings out joy in us. That brings out joy. What we see in the story of Nehemiah is that the people listen and they understand what the word of God is telling them about the nature of God, about who they are and their story with God and what they're calling them to. And they begin to apply it into their lives and they experience the joy and the richness of a new life in God and in his grace and his mercy. And it brings about this goodness and it wells up in this, this joy and this celebration that they have all by applying the word of God into their very situation, into their life. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, check out the story, verses 14 to 17. It says this, They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Remember I told you that was going to be important earlier? Right? Okay, back to it. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in the courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate and the one gate, one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. Now the festival that's being described here is actually found in Leviticus chapter 23. After Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of enslavement, they wandered the desert. And at that time, God is establishing them, reestablishing them as a people. And God gives them these commandments or these festivals, these various festivals to be celebrated throughout the year to retell the story of God's redemption and his work to restore them as a people. And the particular festival that they're reading about was happening, should have been happening, in the very month that they're reading about it. And it was this festival to be reminded that while they were wandering through the desert, they didn't have a permanent place. So they would build up these temporary shelters and they'd live in these temporary shelters for the time as they would celebrate, reminding themselves and retelling the story of God's redemption and about how God had saved them from Egypt and brought them into a new place. 
So because the Israelite people knew the word of God and because they, they desired the word of God and because they held it with high esteem and, they, and they, uh, high regard and they, they submitted to it, they began to just apply it. Immediately they said, why don't we do what the scripture actually tells us to do? It says at this time of the year, this time of the month, we're supposed to go out and build shelters and live out in these shelters. So let's do it. It's just a simple application of the word. When you heard it, you begin to apply it. And then they say from the time of Joshua until this time, they had never celebrated it with that kind of joy. And it was such great joy that was all over the place. When they simply put the word of God into practice, there's joy. There's joy. Last weekend, about 40 of us, we took the command that we hear in Scripture to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we took it serious. And with just a very simple application, we made breakfast. Many of you made uh, grocery bags full of non-perishable foods. And about 40 of us went to our daily bread last weekend. Nothing fancy, nothing else. We just made pancakes and sausage. And we fed people. And we loved them. And we talked with them. And we hung out for the morning. It wasn't fancy, it wasn't lights and cameras, it wasn't any of that stuff. It just was taking the word of God, believing it to be authoritative and the way in which we can find the most joyous, abundant life possible, and we just simply applied it. Several people, about 40 of us were there on that Saturday, and several people came up to me either during that event or after, and they told me, Pastor Brian, I was so Filled with joy for that day. Yeah, I was tired. Yeah, it was a morning. Yeah, we were walking around. Yeah, we were putting pancakes and sausage. Yeah, it was. But I was so joyful. I, that filled my whole, gave me energy for the rest of the day. And here's the principle, right? Here's, here's the thing we can learn. When we walk into obedience of the word of God, there's a joy that comes to us. When we walk in obedience to the word of God, there's a joy that nothing in this world can ever give us because nothing comes the way that God gives it to us. But when we are out of step, when we are not in obedience with the word of God, it will lead to destruction and everything else. Now that doesn't mean it's always easy, right? It doesn't mean it's always easy. Hebrews actually tells us that the word of God is like a double-edged sword and will cut through bone and marrow and divides hearts and intentions and can cut really deeply. So it's not meant that, that obedience to the word of God is always easy and it's a, the most natural thing for us to do. For it can be uncomfortable at times. For if I'm reading and understanding the word of God as it actually is, it can confront me at times. It can confront my ways of understanding myself and the world around me. And it can challenge me to live a different kind of life. And so it can be uncomfortable, not always easy at times. But when I desire it, and when I hold it to high esteem and high regard, and I submit myself to it, while it may not always be easy, our lives will increasingly take on an eternal quality to them, and there will be a joy that no one can take away from us, for we're obedient to the Word of God. So let me ask you another maybe obvious question. What does it look like for you to have a desire to read and understand 
to believe the word of God. So much so that you are willing to apply it to your life. What does that look like for you? Do you believe that it contains the word of God? Are, are you like Peter that has settled in your heart that says, to whom else am we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. Or do you find yourself skeptical still? Well, you hear all this stuff, you're just still kind of skeptical. Can I submit to you this morning that when you realize that the word of God is the authoritative truth, that it contains full truth about who God is, and about who we are and the world in which we live, that there is real wisdom for living the eternal kind of life right now, that you find that within the scriptures. And that there's no other place that you can find that except in the word of God. And there's much things that we can talk about, about the validity of scriptures. How you can know authoritatively, you can know that it is true. That you can be assured of the fact that it contains truth. See, we can talk about the reliability of the scriptures, about the oral tradition in the ancient world and how it, can, how it holds things together. And while it's not like the human telephone game that we played as kids, but the oral tradition of ancient cultures actually holds together truth. And we can trust the reliability of the scriptures to be handed down to us, that it was kept intact. We can talk all night about that. We can talk about the backgrounds of all the various authors that have written the scriptures that span over 1,500 years and yet the continuity of the scriptures that tell the same story about God and about us and about this world that he's calling us into. We can talk about the continuity of the scriptures even though written by various people with various backgrounds across various amounts of time. We can talk about that and that would be a fun conversation to have. We can have all sorts of conversations about the validity, about the, the scriptures, about the, the way in which we can know, assuredly know that it is true. We can have all sorts of conversations, and I would love to have that with you if you want to. But the real proof isn't the academic work. The real proof isn't an academic debate whether you can trust the authorship or all these other stuff. The real proof is in your experience of the truth. The real proof is your experience of the words that when you hear it and you put it into practice and you begin to see the result of living in accordance to the ways in which God has called us to and you find the joy that nothing in this world can take, you find the goodness and the eternal quality of life. See, friends, we can talk for decades, really, about the academic stuff about this book, about how I know that it contains truth but the real proof is in our experience. When the Hebrew people heard it, they desired it, and they put it to practice. And it changed everything. Changed everything. I just want to simply want to invite you, no matter where you are in your life with God and following him for minutes or for decades, that we don't make it more complicated than it needs to be, right? We don't need to get into a long academic debate but wherever you are in your life with Jesus, can I just invite you to the simplicity of applying God's word to your situation. For God's people are always built by God's word, by his truth, and by submitting to his authority. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are humbled and grateful that you have 
inspired the words that you have moved in such a way to have your word be written down for us, that we would know you and that our lives would take on an eternal quality when we follow you. Pray for a growing desire for your word in our life, an ability to understand your word and the courage to apply it in simple obedience to what you've called us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen.